Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Osiris. And there it is. Helping. The Helping Friendly Podcast. 40 for 40. We're doing okay here. It is Friday, May 12th. We have reached an incredible year in fish history, which we'll be talking about for the next probably four and a half hours. I don't know. I've got a lot to say. At least. Um, Brian Brinkman here, Megan, and RJ's chair. Um, As I noted in the show notes to all of our fans out there, um, like the band, and and uh, this is just me assuming, but like the band, we had too many brown donuts <laughs> before today's show. Oops! And just craziness has happened, and we just don't know where RJ is. He's completely gone. Yeah, where he up is and he? left. And but this is show business. The show must go on. So RJ's chair, just like Barack Obama's chair when it engaged with uh, Clint Eastwood at the 2012 Republican National Convention, RJ's chair is going to have a lot to say today. I I can guarantee it. Um, We are going to dive into 7-10-1997 from eSpace Julian, which I probably just butchered because I'm a white American and I can't speak French. Say that again. Whoa. Whoa. Who's that? Oh hey! Hey! Hi, RJ. The brown yeah. donuts wore off quickly. How you doing? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. <laughs> How you guys doing? We're oh, great. Man. We're doing great. What a day! What a day! I mean, it's we're gonna get to talk about 1997 today. I'm so happy. And Jonathan's not here to tell me it's not good. He's not. We're 
we're gonna have. To, I'm gonna have to interject with a few negative thoughts yes, about 1997. That's to. not even possible. I've never had a negative thought about 1997. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, kind of crept up amazing. on us here. You know the 97 know. thing. Totally. Can you guys believe that we've reached this point? No, not really. Not really. Honestly, I was I was thinking about it in the week off. Um, you know, we did 12 196 last week, and I loved that show, and I loved that mm-hmm. second set, and then. I'm listening to this show and one of the things that we talked about last week was how much you could hear this band like pushing and pulling against who they were and this idea of like we got to peak all these jams but also no 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 we're not going to do that anymore we're not going to mess around like that like we're going for groove we're going for sonic washes of sound and then 6 months later we're listening to this show and the groove is all all over the place and the peaks are gone and this band sounds completely new we're going to dive into it there's so many thoughts uh, so many thoughts about this show. Before we do that, though, RJ, you're doing good today. You having a good Friday? Megan and I already like bantered about how we're doing. I, I, I'm having a great day. For those of you who are fish fans, I'll just tell you what I told Brian and Megan, which is that I was just I had lunch with a couple of people from the Man Music Center, and I'm. It's only a couple miles from my house, and I think I'm gonna. I'm, I'm working on getting involved with them to help. They do a ton of music education stuff because it's a nonprofit that's owned by the city. But, um, you know, they also have tons of awesome concerts and they need they need people to help them, you know, get the word out and and do more interesting things. So I, I, that was a really fun way to spend lunch. That's awesome. Are you considering, They'd be lucky to have you, RJ. They would. Are Thanks, you Megan. considering bringing a festival to the Man Music Center following <laughs> our conversation last week as well? Yes. Actually, I think that was an early, wasn't that an early, didn't we have that conversation about an Osiris festival at the man? I feel like that was a thing that we talked about. Was that a place you thought about doing it? That'd be the spot. It would be great. Um, But I'm good. It's, it's like 85 degrees here. It's definitely feels like it's summer. I'm so happy about it. We just got like a year's worth of rain in 48 hours in Denver. It literally rained nonstop for two days. Every time I walked outside, I was like, it's still raining. I feel like I'm living in Portland, Oregon, Oregon again. But like, I can't even complain about it because I live in a faux desert and like on the edge of like the biggest desert in our, uh, on our continent. And we need this water so, so badly. So it, uh, it was nice. I'm going to Red Rocks tonight. I'm going to see Billy wow. Strings. Wow. Uh, it's gonna be, I haven't it's gonna heard be of good, him. Is he new? Is he a new act? Yeah. Have you heard of Billy motherfucking Strings? Because oh, he oh, really yeah. That, awesome. You're confusing Billy, it. Yeah. Billy now has, I, now has, I understand. Yeah, his younger brother. He's, he's all right. He's all right. He writes some good <laughs> songs. He picks a little bit. Um, so 71097, 97 as a whole. Let's just start. I think we've all been waiting to get to this point. Okay. I know I have. I know you have, Meg. I want to just give you the floor. When you think about fish, I have two questions. One, what does 97 mean to you? And two, when you hear fish in your head, are you hearing fish 97 or are you hearing a different era? I'll answer the second question first because it's easier. It depends what song. There are certain songs like Ghost that when I hear that song, I'm hearing 97 fish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But- The larger question, I've been waiting to talk about this since we started this project, and I want to tell a personal story just because I think there's a parallel to kind of what Fish was going through then. 1997 was super intense for me. I, A friend of mine passed away from a drug overdose that spring, 
And I was attempting to break up with my boyfriend, who was the first person I ever loved, who was also kind of struggling with these issues as well. And, you know, we were so young and we like didn't, I was 19 and 20. I didn't know how to grieve. I didn't like know how to go through that process. And so we didn't really, we just Mm. kept on partying, you know? And when I think back on that year, I remember so many like parties and fish shows and raves and like fun times, but there's this kind of undercurrent of like darkness to it. And it was also this really creatively inspiring time for me. I was like writing a lot and acting a lot and reading a lot and dancing. And there was just, it just felt really like vibrant to me. And Mm. to me, that's kind of like a parallel of what was going on with Fish then. You know, there's all this tension that they had from being on the bus together for so long. Like Trey talks about that in Undermine um, when he was on to talk about 11, 17, 97 of, you know, what it's like to travel in a bus for years and years with, with these guys, that kind of tension that builds up. You know, they're all getting this press. They're like more popular now. They're like breaking into the mainstream media, you know, and they did this full arena tour in 96 and they knew they wanted to change their sound, but they like couldn't do it while they were doing their first mm-hmm. arena tour. And, you know, they felt alone because they were like isolated backstage during that tour, which is so different from when they were playing clubs and smaller venues and theaters. So they start looking at like the party around them and bringing that more backstage and, you know, being on the bus, like Trace talked about and listening to like James Brown. And then they're thinking about like how they can bring this party, these elements of the party into their music. And you can hear that it's like, their music is so fun. It sounds like a party in 97, but there's like that darker undercurrent like lurking. And that's like the lure of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it's like, because these guys are like such good guys and they're, you know, they're nerds and they're good friends. They were able to kind of like resist those temptations, I think for a long time, like longer than most of us, I think. But like even the most grounded people, like under these kinds of pressures and with this kind of access and creativity and, and, you know, inspiration. And there were so many people wanting to give them that, you know, it, even the like most grounded of us can get the kind of like lured into that. So I feel like it's like that moment of like, you know, in a horror film when the lead actress is like at the party or, you know, at some fun event in the beginning of the movie and she's having the best time, but then like she thinks she sees something out of the corner of her eye. And so she kind of like looks at it and then she's like, feels like something's off, but then she convinces herself like, no, it's fine. I'm just going to like go back to the party. And, but you know, you're like, shit's coming for her, you know? And that's what I feel like 97 is to me. You know, it's when I hear it, I hear like loose, groovy, sexy, it's ecstasy. You know, it's that drug that was like so prevalent in the scene. It's like all about like having fun and getting off and connecting and dancing and like that hypnotic buzz, you know, that's to me what 97 is it's like a pressure cooker, you know, that's so much fun, but it feels like it's about to like just explode. Yeah. That says it all. Um, (laughs) I, I get, I get that sense. Um, musically. I mean, I, uh, I had a very different life experience in 1997 as, as I was in, I was 12 years old at the end of six, (laughs) into seventh grade, (laughs) um, (laughs) which is reflected in some of my, for our bonus episode, we're going to talk about favorite albums of the year. And, um, it's, it's reflected in that list. But I think everything you said about fish, like the thing that's so fascinating to me is it feels both like a goal achieved where, you know, this transition that the band went through following New Year's Eve 95 is fully realized throughout the year and obviously fully peaked in fall 1997. 
But then at every step you start to hear and you start to sense the darkness. And we all know that over the next seven years, uh, basically the next decade are gonna, is going to be very, very challenging for the band up until mm-hmm. 2006, 2007. Um, and then obviously the uh, hints at and the, the ultimate announcement towards coming back in 2008 and then eventually 2009 coming back. So like the next 10 to 12 years are very unhinged in a way that the previous 10 to 12 years were all focused on growth and all focused on joy and all focused on friendship. And you start to hear that just creep in every so often uh, throughout this year. And I think this show is kind of a really interesting insight into it. But RJ, um, far be it for the noob here to talk about what 1997 was like. You were there. You were on the ground. You were eating drugs for the very first time in your entire life. Um, You were probably podcasting or at least had a radio show at that point in time. Um, Tell us, what was 1997 Fish like for you? What what is your overall perspective on the year when you think back on it at this point? Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of have the exact opposite um, view that Megan does. So that's just... Ooh, fun. Like I... To me, it's like, a, and, and partially because of, you know, obviously, not even partially, completely because of where I was, you know, in, in that I was like, it was a be- brand new part of my life. I was in college, a freshman in college. I'd left, got, left home for the first time. Like, it was like a brand new world, you know? So, to me, it's like very much a, like a new, a total new beginning. Musically, too, I think. Like, that's what I hear in the music. It just, it feels like they... They do this every, and they still do it every, you know, two to four years. Like the the sound changes, you know. And I think ninety five, we saw like a big change. Um, ninety two, ninety three, same thing. So I feel like it was like a change toward um, toward what we what we know of as you know, fall ninety seven. So I, yeah, it's interesting. I and I don't. I hear a lot of that. What you're describing. Megan in like 2.0 fish, you know, like, mm. <clears throat> like the 2003, even where there's like these great jams, like to me, you can just hear the, you can just hear the drugs like in the music, you know, <laughs> like in, oh, in yeah. you can hear in 97 too, but it's more like fun drugs than like the 2.0 where it's like, you can hear the, the oxy jams, you know, like it's yeah, no, for sure. But those fun drugs, like they had dark sides to them and like, you know, you you came off them and you felt not great anymore, you know? And, but yeah, it's interesting because that reminds me of like when I got into the Grateful Dead in like 93, you know, it was like the bitter end, but I, I thought it was amazing because it was like new to me, you know? Yeah. But yeah, 97 is, yeah, it's not fully dark yet, but it's like lingering. But I do, I wonder about also about like, you know, Trey going through what he went through. Um, I do wonder if he, <clears throat> like had he not gone through um you know the addiction and the recovery and all that like would we would would our perspectives be different you know because i think his reflecting on it especially in the last 5 years or so um has changed the way that i see that trajectory you know what i mean yeah um like if they just continued to just do like if they continue to just do drugs casually, which is a weird thing to say, but let's just say that they did that over the, you know, yeah. forever until now, would they still, like, would we still hear this period as, as the way you're describing it or would, would it be different? Mm. Because the, like Trey has sort of like framed it for us and it's developed true. like this narrative about how, 
how the era kind of went up and down, which is obviously true, but you know, it's just interesting to think about. Absolutely. I feel the, and I think we're going to talk a lot about this over the next 10 to 15 episodes as we kind of are going to following this period. And there's a quote I want to put up here, a a comment I want to put up here, because I think it addresses a really interesting thought over the next few episodes. But I, I almost think the idea of them just being able to manage this period better was not possible. Like, I think that they reached such a creative high and such a creative peak. And along with that comes what you were talking about, Meg, like the embrace of the darkness, um, you know, the rock and roll lifestyle that I don't even think was a part of their goal when they started, but like became a part of their lives as big buses come on, you know, onto the scene for them. And they like can suddenly party on these really nice buses and they're going to Europe on tours and they're across the country, you know, three or four times a year. And they're kind of, anyway, they have this fan base that is just constantly following them and praising everything. Like with that comes almost a curse of starting to believe your own hype in some ways. Yeah. And these guys were all in their like early thirties. And so like, what else do they know perspective wise of life? Like they've been doing this since they were 18 years old. So I almost think like this was all inevitable where this was going from a darkness standpoint, that the story that has always been fascinating to me about fish is how they cleaned all that up and came back and proved that they could be just as creative, if not more so in some cases without all that, that like that was not the essential ingredient. Um, one thing I want to post here though, good friend of the pod, um, our buddy Brian from attendance bias. Interesting that while those years were quote unhinged each year from 97 to 2000 have people calling them their favorite year. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's like a big thing we're going to speak to. Like this is my favorite era of fish. Like my favorite year is 95, but if I'm going to go, like if I just need a fish show to go to, I always go 97 to 2000 because you're mm-hmm. guaranteed jams, you're guaranteed big grooves, you're guaranteed like big bust outs in a lot of cases are you guys similar in that standpoint? Like when you go to just like randomly listen to a fish show, is there like an era you usually go to? Yeah. I mean, 94 to 97. That's it. Yeah. That's like my sweet spot for sure. RJ, what about you? Mostly something, almost always something within the last 12 months. Mm. Mm. I like, I rarely go back to old shows unless it's for the podcast. It's strange. It's a good thing that you and Ryan Storm yeah. are friends because he's never listened to anything before 2015. <laughs> that's, I think that's right. Wait, I, I mean, did I like listen to your bonus episode about that. That was funny. <laughs> I do like going back, but I don't like. I don't have a you know. Every time I listen to an old show that I know, I'm like, this is great. But if I'm going to listen to Fish, I typically am listening to something more recent. Well, there's so much. It's like hard to keep yeah. up with it all. Yeah, yeah. that's so, the problem. I mean, I there's listen so to much the most and so much of it is good. Too. Yeah, and but. If I think, like, if you said to me, like, you can choose anything to listen to, it's going to be from those three years. Yeah. Or All right. We are going to need, 19. we are going to, or 1230, 19. <laughs> 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 All right. We're going to need to get to the show because um, the people demand it. And this is a wild show. There's a lot to say. But before we yeah. do that, we have two very, very important pieces of business here. Meg, can you set the context? Where is Fish at this point in time? Yeah. So I think people know a lot about this year, so I'm not going to spend too much time, but we've got 84 shows in 1997. 
Obviously, we know they're going to be in Europe in February and March. They're going to record Slip, Stitch, and Pass at the Marktal in March. They're going to play Character Zero on The Letterman Show on March 5th. Then they're going to go back to Bearsville, where they recorded Billy Breathes, and they're going to start thinking about what will eventually be Story of the Ghost and The Sicket Disc. So they're going to compose in this really democratic way. So they're going to record themselves jamming for four days, and then they're going to do this again six months later. And Paige is going to make a highlight reel, which will become 10 songs, and then they'll vote on them for which ones make the album. But we'll talk more about that next year, I think, next week, when we talk about 1998, since that's when the album's out. But that's an interesting point, because I think that's also when, like, the cracks start to show between, like, this idea of, like, a perceived democracy with the band and then, like, Trey's, like, musical vision. But we can talk more about that next week. Uh, Fish Food is going to be released this year. Um, they're going to sing the Star Spangled Banner at the NHL Eastern Conference Finals. They're going to have Bradstock, and then they're going to leave for Europe again. And they're going to be in Europe in June and July. You know, they're going to debut 13 songs over two nights. They're going to get on the back of the worm at the Paradiso in July. And then they're going to come back to the U.S. and play one of my favorite shows of all time, July 21st, 1997, to open their U.S. summer tour. And these three shows, I saw this one in Walnut Creek and this show in Atlanta, and I'll just never forget the energy in the crowd for those shows. People were so excited to hear this new sound. And I've never felt anything like when they came out on July 21st and just ripped into that ghost. It was just so exciting and just a special moment in my life. And I'm glad I was there. So this tour in the summer is going to go to the Southeast, out West, to the Midwest and end at the Great Went. They're going to play on the Conan O'Brien show that fall. And then they're going to do their obviously big 21 date fall tour that was covered so beautifully on Undermine. And they'll end the year at MSG. I'll see the best fish show I've ever seen on 12 97 Although I didn't appreciate it at the time, I don't think. And the last few important things this year are the Waterwheel Foundation has started. They're also going to inc- um, invite the filmmaker to record them um, from the Great Went all the way to the Rochester show in December, which is going to become Bittersweet Motel. And they're going to debut 49 songs this year. So many songs. Roses Are Free, Farmhouse, Meat Stick, Piper, Twist, Dirt, Limb by Limb, Ghost, Dog, Stole Things, Water in the Sky, Vultures, Waiting in the Velvet Sea, Isabella, Walfredo, Cuini, and everyone's favorite, My Soul. (laughs) Big year. Big year. Big year. Would you guys say that this is the last year of like quote unquote classic fish songs debuting? Hmm. Like I feel like everything yeah. else since then. Yeah, that's fair. Still I would, feels maybe. New. Yeah. I haven't really thought about that, but yeah, I think you I think I think it probably is. I feel like, like I, I have to like... look at the debut list because I feel like I keep thinking that every week and then the next week it comes out and I'm like, oh wait a minute. These are all like, classic songs. These are all classics too. Yeah. Because a lot of the farmhouse stuff had already had already come out and written. Yeah, exactly. Right. 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 Mama came out in 98. Um, Black Eyed Katie was 97. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Ryan Momo wasn't debuted. I, I don't know if you knew this, but th- it was a song before that that didn't have words, um, which was called <laughs> Black Eyed Katie. Um, that was a great rundown, Megan. Thank you. Todd Thanks. Phillips, Thanks. Todd Thanks, Phillips getting on the road. Tom has some good Todd Phillips, like, stories of being on the road with them while while i can only imagine um so so did he join he joined for the went 
mm-hmm. and then came back for Rochester because he wasn't he there for most of all between, tour. Right? Did he do there was definitely between? some Europe stuff. Yeah. Well, he didn't go. To, he came to Europe '98. He didn't do Europe. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't do '97. Europe '98. Yeah. So he does. Um, he comes for the went, which is a really crazy intro to the band because they immediately yeah. get into a fight backstage, and then they like have the greatest set ever, and they decide to release a live album that they've never released of the Great Went, uh, and then he comes to Rochester, amazing show, and then I'll come back the next the next year. Um, all right, before we dive into this show, we do need to set the context of what was going on in the world at this time. And guys, there are some fucking bangers that I have for you, okay? I'm so excited. So the week of July 10th, 1997, which I believe this was a Thursday. So this is like the week of July 7th, 1997. The top five shows on television. We've had a one-two switching places every year. And I'll tell you what, this year, this this month, we have the GOAT in number one. But we're going to start with number five, which is Touched by an Angel, an absolutely horrendous <laughs> show that appeals only to old Trumpers who, um, you know, tell themselves. Before they were Trumpers. They were <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before they, they knew what they were going to fucking do. They knew. Um, number four. Friends, the most unrealistic sitcom of all time. <laughs> I can't handle it. Number three, a show I have no idea about, uh, Veronica's Closet. Anybody watch this show? I don't know why it sounds familiar, but I'm thinking of Veronica Mars, so no. RJ, you got thoughts on season three? No, I, I know that it existed. No idea what it is. <laughs> so it was a part of NBC's must-see TV. I don't know either. Uh, number Damn. two, ER. And number one. Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Music. We have a really, uh, really incredible top three here. Number five, we got Bone Thugs and Harmony. Look in my eyes from the mm. Batman and Robin soundtrack, one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life, but it had a decent soundtrack. Uh, number four, Mark Morrison's Return of the Mac. I'm not familiar with this song. Are you guys? Sounds like some like bad R and B hip hop song. I don't know. Kind of looked like that. The guy was wearing like a fedora. Mm-hmm. You know, just like looking down. Oh, all. Alf! Hell yeah, Scott. <laughs> that is like some old school stuff. That was most unrealistic. Definitely most unrealistic. That was a good point. I re- I re- it's that's a good point. I, un- yeah. I I accept that, but but um... I just want to say that the whole point of sitcoms is that they're unrealistic. They're not like. Yeah, but it's annoying when it's like supposed to be people in New York City that could never live that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I think that's like there's a very small segment of of people who know that. I'm, I'm one saying. of them, and I just want everyone to know that you can't live that way in New York. That's City. fine. That's fine. But I just think everyone in the Midwest watched that show and was like, "Thank you for portraying what it's like to live in New York. This is great." I think I had yeah. a lot of friends who watched it for that reason. They're like, "Oh, we're going to move to New York," and then they like looked up housing <laughs> in 1998, and they're like, "Oh my god, I got to pay $500 a month. I'm not doing that." Um, it's probably a little bit more expensive than that. All right, number three. This is important for the show in question today. Probably the biggest single of my entire middle school life. Hanson's Mbop. Huge. This was Huge. everywhere. Even though I hated it, it was at every single dance. It was playing in everyone's house, yeah. in every mom's minivan. This fucking song followed at summer camp. Everywhere I went, I heard this song. <laughs> everywhere. There's, there's even a reference to Hanson in today's show. There is. There is. Uh, number two. I vividly remember this music video and I remember watching it with my mom 
on VH1, which was the only music video channel she would allow me to watch for the first uh, couple years of middle mm. school. And then I finally got to watch MTV. And she thought this song was really cool, which made me think that my mom was really cool because it's Meredith Brooks's bitch. And I was like, wow, she's down with this song. And I think she was just like having like a middle age, like she related to the vibe of this song in a really good way. That's awesome. Uh, and number one, man, I had this single and then I had this album. This is the first bit of hip hop I ever bought with my own money. And the, the first bit I ever had myself, uh, I was so tied to this story. Oh my God. Not only is it like an, an emotional story about a friend losing a friend, but it's a, an educational story about how to rip off a song and just slap it on another song and get a number one single on both the US and UK charts at the exact same time. Puff Daddy, Faith Evans, I'll Be Missing You. Classic. Puffy was everywhere in 97. Oh my God. I love this song. It was, I was at every single school dance. Um, finally wow. movies. And we have a pretty amazing top three here as well. Ooh. Number five, my best friend's wedding, Julie Roberts. Oh, yeah. Somehow mm-hmm. Julie Roberts was left by her best friend to marry. She was the bridesmaid. Talk about unrealistic. Come on. Jesus Christ. Fucking do we even need writers in the 90s? Come on. <laughs> Number four. Hercules. The first Disney movie I saw in theaters that I was like, mm. I'm too old for this shit. Number three, incredibly underrated and just amazing science fiction movie, Contact. Have you guys seen this? Oh, yes. I've seen that movie so many times. It's incredible. It's um, Jodie Foster. What is it? Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey. She goes through a fucking wormhole. It's incredible. Yes. It's amazing. I've seen that multiple times. That is very good. If you have not seen that, you have to see that movie. Multiple years before Matthew McConaughey would go through his own wormhole and become a gif on the other side of it. (laughs) Number two, talk about unrealistic. This is uh, a movie about a... I think police officer, CIA officer chasing down a massive terrorist in Los Angeles who realizes that the only way he will be able to catch this terrorist, um, or no, there's a bomb, there's a bomb somewhere. And so he catches the terrorist, he puts the terrorist to sleep and he takes his face off and puts it on his own face. Oh, this yes. is John, <laughs> John Travolta, <laughs> Nicholas Cage in face off. Just amazing stuff. Uh, I think Corey is talking about our intro. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so painful. Number one, there was the slap heard around the world. But before the slap heard around the world, there was a man who dominated July 4th weekend. And for the second year in a row, Will Smith leads the box office with Men in Black. Classic. Very classic. I don't really like Will Smith, but... Mm-hmm. Bonus episode topic. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll also just while we're on that topic, um, we will be doing a bonus episode on our favorite albums of 1997. If you want to support what we're doing at Osiris and actually hear us talk about things that aren't the show in question, but also shorter, <laughs> you could support Osiris Premium. Go to osirispod.com slash premium. Shorter is questionable. Brian, I'm not upset with Face Off. I never saw that movie, but I am I am upset with um this podcast 
Oh, that hurts, you, RJ. Come on. You should get really stoned and watch face off at some point in time. Okay. It is ridiculous. <laughs> he takes his face off and he puts it on and his I face and then he comes. It's, it's and, really and then weird. Nick Cage wakes up. It's, it's crazy. It's Wait, have you seen Contact, RJ? No. Okay, that has to be done first. I haven't that seen like to... most, like I'm really bad at movies. Has, like, I haven't radio, seen most movies. And she, like, Contact is legit good somebody. and it's on so HBO right now. You have no excuse. Go watch it. Hmm. Um, okay. Let's dive into this show. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, RJ. See ya. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, set one. These set lists are going to sound really strange as I read them, but we're going to dive in and provide you with con- context. Uh, set one, we've got Dog Stole Things, Limb by Limb, Ginseng Sullivan, Bathtub Gin, Into Llama, Into Waiting in the Velvet Sea, A Jam that mm. ultimately sounds like The Lizards, and Olivia's Pool. Tell me, what do you make of this first set, RJ? Well, the, so the reason that I chose this set, I, I think that, first of all, a lot of our shows um, for this series were off limits. I don't know if we said this disclaimer. I'm sure that we did. But we said that a lot of, sh- the, like the shows that we covered on Undermine, we wouldn't we wouldn't do on, on this 40 for 40 series. So, of course, all of Fall and, and lots of 97 shows were, were off the table. But um, I, I think the Summer Europe tour is really when the sound changed and evolved into what we hear in fall 97 which is definitely you know among my top two or three tours in fish history um like the winter tour had some glimpses of it toward the end like the stuff that we hear on slip stitch and pass and um but the beginning of that tour was like pretty tame and like didn't they were still trying to figure it out you know and I, but i feel like this this show is representative of of when this kind of like funk sound starts to to come to life and i think the this show takes a little while to get warmed up kind of like our podcast but um you know the the dog stole things limb by limb ginseng all fine um but you know the bathtub gin into llama is a a a really fun segment um that it just has this like it has a laid-back feel but also it gets a little spacey and then we get this kind of proto funk and it's um that's really fun into and then the rest of the set is just you know there's clearly there's like a a real serious looseness as as you said megan yeah absolutely i agree yeah i wrote in my notes when ginseng sullivan started to this point you'd be hard pressed to think anything wild is going to happen it feels like the most basic first quarter of a of a show that you could imagine and then it jumps into this 50 minute segment of just insanity. Megan, what is this set like for you? And when you think back on 1997, how does this type of set inform the choices the band's going to make throughout the remainder of the year? Well, I feel a little bit different about the first part of the set. I think that like the dogs is so patient and like silky and sultry. And then limb by limb is like, it has this connectivity and this warmth and the stickiness to it that I feel like it's so different from like 95 and parts of 96 where it's really like psychedelic and colder. Like you can feel them starting to feel that, yeah, this looseness, this groove, this patience that they just haven't had before. And yeah, I think ginseng is like that call back to the earlier era, which I think you still hear at times. And then mm-hmm. they launch into this gin, which is like, I've always thought this song with its like kind of 
boozy drops and like it's like got that like languid riff to it. I feel like it's like so perfect 97. I remember hearing it in those early 90s um, in the July shows a few weeks later. Um, I think I heard it the first night in uh, in Virginia Beach. It was just, it's the perfect 97 song. It just has that like loose and like drifting groove to it. And this one is awesome. I mean, there's just this like edge to it. It's such a dark funk. And I feel like, this is really like you can hear them just having so much fun, you know, and the audience is like cheering them on when it gets to the end, when it crescendos to that just like full on funk dance party. It's like, you know, the crowds in Europe were mostly Americans who had like, you know, who were overseas. At least that's when I was in Europe in 96, it was like that. And then there was like, you know, probably like a third of the crowd that was local and they're loving this. They're like eating this up. And I feel like that's what really drove a lot of 97 too, is that I think the band was like, oh, look at the crowd. Like they're loving this shit, you know, like this is so fun. And I think it was fun to play. You can hear them throughout this. I mean, this Lizard's Jam is, I haven't listened to this in a long time and it is so fun. I've listened to this like four times now. It's just like so chill and loungy and you can hear them just like find the riff. Trey's got like a muted effect on his guitar and then when he switches to his normal tone, it just like soars over and you hear the crowd go wild and it's like so satisfying. They just sound like they're having a blast. And I love the kind of freedom they felt in Europe, you know, getting away from that arena tour and being able to be in these small clubs again. And you can hear them just really luxuriating in that. And I think that they tried to take that sense and bring it, you know, to the amphitheaters and to the arenas in the U.S. And I think they did it. I think that effect sound that like when you listen to that bathtub gin, it is, it is the sound of the summer 97, which kind of totally. um, whatever that effect is, it's kind of gone by fall, but, but it is like this filter of some kind, you know, that you can just place it immediately that it comes from between like March and, and August 97. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then it was gone by fall tour. Mm -hmm. Didn't really yeah. Use that. I don't Maybe know what the, we'd have to ask Ryan, but. Well, and it adds to this um, sort of rawness to the sound. Like by the mm -hmm. time they get to fall, to fall, and this is, I think, what makes it so interesting that because of the rules that we put in place uh, for this series, we couldn't do any Fall '97, and so we we chose this show that I don't think we would have picked had we had all '97 on the table. I think we probably would have picked something amazing from the fall, and you would hear the, heard this fully realized sound. But here we get this perspective of a band still in transition, and so there's these effects that are not going to be there in the fall. There's also, in a sense, like we talk a lot about like how technology impacts fish we talked about this a lot with our spring tour uh episodes where like mm. mike has a new bass pages since trey's new effects how are all these things impacting the sound of the band it's wild to listen to this band that sounds so different from the band that we talked about last week in the 12 196 and especially the 10 95 episode that we talked about uh two weeks ago or three weeks ago whenever that was and think about the fact that this band um is really only introducing a, a synthesizer for Paige, some new effects for Mike, and more emphasis on the wah pedal for Trey, and maybe like one or two additional pedals. But like overall, they're not like introducing new massive technology. They're just a approaching their sound differently and then using 
subtle new elements of technology that are impacting their overall sound. But it's not like it's this overhaul of let's bring this new gear in. It's the band intentionally saying we want to play in this style. They figured out a way to do it. And these are the effects that are going to get get there uh, for us. It just it blew me away listening to this, how like five months later, this sound is going to feel softer around the edges. And especially like a year later, they're going to be an ambient territory. And it's going to be completely different from this like hard edged funk sound that we're in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, there's some interesting, what Ryan just said, like the he prefers summer over fall because there's a rawness and unpredictability. You hear that in the... In the like the latter half of the set with uh, the llama, the waiting, the the jam ending with Olivia's pool, it's just a weird weird way to end, you know. Well, I thought about that a lot when I was listening to this because this segment of music is so new and it's so raw and it's so it challenges the norms of what you think about fish. And I was thinking about there's a segment around like ten minutes in the bathtub gym. Where it's as abstract and wild as Summer 95, but in place of, you know, weird screaming and like screeches on the guitars and Paige just like banging on the grand piano, there's melody and there's groove. And that underlying aspect is what we'll ultimately get to in the fall. And while I don't necessarily agree that fall is more predictable per se, I do think that one of the things that... I think that one of the things that makes people like fall better, like, or like fall a lot and like look to fall 97 is this like kind of totem of where fish was at, whereas summer tour feels a little bit scary and a little bit adventurous is that they haven't fully locked in a melody and they haven't fully locked mm. in a groove. They can't just like fall into the kind of groove that you're going to get in the like Haley's Comet from Hampton or mm-hmm. um, the Tweezer Bella where like you have these moments where like, they're just playing a dance party and they aren't fully there at this point, but you hear like through the bathtub gym, um, you hear Mike throwing these like laser effects out during the llama. Um, at some point I, I noted, um, midway through, through the llama around like eight minutes, we've just completely left Kansas. Like we are not even, (laughs) this isn't fish anymore. This is just like totally different music. Um, the lizards jam, as you noted, like, so bizarre that they would actually like play lizards without lizards, but it doesn't sound like lizards, but it sounds like lizards and it sounds Calypso at times. It's so, it's so bizarre. Um, but this segment, like this sounds like that band in transition at that moment. Yeah. And I was just thinking about this when you were saying that Brian, because you know, when you are creating music that has more space and more groove, I think that a lot of the music they wrote at this time to lyrically is a real level up. Like I think about like waiting in the velvet sea or like MoMA dance, Mm. like these songs are absolutely gorgeous lyrically. And maybe they, because the music was more spacious, I don't know. I've never really thought about that before, but it's interesting to think about the music that they were writing then and lyrically how it was starting to change, I think from some of their earlier stuff. 
Yeah, I was thinking waiting, like, it's only the 10th version. It really makes me wonder if they knew at that moment that they'd written one of their most, like, crossover potential songs. Um, Like, this was a song that, like, you could put on mixtapes and, like, give to people, and they may not have any any interest in anything about fish but like they heard this song and they were like oh i like that one song by fish cuz it's just like undeniably beautiful yeah and it's like the saddest most gorgeous lyrics ever like you won't find moments in a box and someone else will set your clocks i don't has anyone ever captured that sentiment of like breaking up with somebody and trying to convince them not to leave you like better than that it's just so beautiful and it's going to absolutely destroy the band uh, seven years from now. Yep, exactly. Um, the show ends or the set ends with Olivia's pool, which I just wrote down like what just happened as I was listening to all this <laughs> because it's like the most standard boogie rock that you could imagine. But this is the fourth version all time. We've got 10 total. There will be two more versions, 729 and 1117 before a 692 show gap where it came back on July 14th, 2019. This is as rare of a rare 1997 song as it gets. Obviously, this song is going to evolve, um, but it's just an interesting kind of dichotomy to where they are. RJ, are there any thoughts you have just to like cap this all off about this segment, the gin, the llama, the waiting, the lizards, any additional thoughts that you have? No, no, I'm good. We did talk about Olivia's Pool on the episode of Undermine that came out today, um, for about four or five ninety eight. In case anyone wants to hear Tom talk about that, um, check out that episode. I think that's a good point as well. That, and we're going to talk about it here in the second set. The ghost. You talked, Megan, about the lyrics. Like Tom writing ghost. I think a lot of us as fans overlook the like very personal nature to that story. Oh yeah, and that him being able to capture. Trey describes Tom's lyrics better than anyone ever has uh, in Bittersweet Motel, where he talks about that idea of like, um, he's attributed obviously to the song Sleep, but like the idea of like waking up from a dream and you like capture something, but like you're not lucid enough to write it down. And it's like that moment between like you waking up and you actually like being awake. And it's a type Mm. of like vibe that Tom can write about in a way that is really captivating as a listener and also sounds there's, it, it doesn't sound like conventional in any sort of way. So like mm-hmm. you can't relate to it unless you know. And then when you know, you're like, oh my God, I fucking know exactly what he's talking about. But like ghost is that sort of way. Like what a strange concept to write about. But then when you hear it and you hear the backstory to it, you're like, maybe you have or have not experienced anything like that. But you're like, I know exactly what he's talking about, even though it's this very weird ephemeral sort of sort of idea um also like it's open to interpretation which is like right best of tom's lyrics are like that you know the best of anyone's lyrics right like it's about something so personal but it can mean different things to different people yeah i love that um all right set two the weirdness continues and basically continues the rest of the rest (laughs) of the show i will say that there is a moment of this show that i almost did not listen to and then i'm glad i did because oh my god there was just so much uh, in there. But set two, we've got 2001 into Julius, right into Magia, Yamar into Ghost, into Take Me to the River, and then we have a funky bitch encore. And it is not just a funky bitch encore. It is like all caps, Meredith Brooks-style funky bitch encore. Oh, uh, <laughs> One of my all-time favorite covers. <laughs> so 
we start this set with Trey saying that he loves Jimi Hendrix and friends saying that he is actually Danny Bonaducci of the Partridge family. And that this is where he's at 20 years after the Partridge well, family's he's his, fame. He's his bass player. He's his bass player. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, he mocks the crowd for being too young to know what the Partridge family is while joking that they all knew who Hanson was two days earlier. Um, this kicks off a set in a way that it just made me think about it, this is where like the context of where this show is kind of blew me away. Cause this is just over a month from the great went. And I feel like by the time they get to the great went, their sound is going to refine itself that much more like the cities RJ that you saw in eight, 10 97 um, is such a locked in groove that I don't think that they were capable of extending a groove that long at this point in the tour, there was a lot of just like, can we keep doing this? Like, should we keep doing this? I almost yeah. wonder in a sense, like at this point, are they even thinking that they're going to play in this style when they get back to the United States? Mm. But this 2001, it's not that like fully blown out kind of glossy version that we're going to hear at the great went. It still feels like they're dipping their toes into it. But RJ, what are your thoughts on this set overall? And what were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, I think they're just kind of fucking around, you know? Like, I think that's basically the summary of the set, which is fun. Like Ryan said earlier, less predictable. I mean, this the, the 2001 just picks up. We were talking about this um, on Undermine, I think, with uh, about 2001 kind of. I think I said this on Undermine the other day about the 4-4 um, version. But, like, this era is when they've been playing this song for, what, seven, six years or something or five mm-hmm. years, however many years at this point. I guess it started playing in 93. Is that right? Four years? Yeah, um, summer 93. So, but now they finally, like, the style of their music catches up with the cover, you know? Yeah. We're like now. Yeah, just, totally. And this version is a good, like, early, you know, 97 funk version. It's just basically, like, I mean, it's like 15 minutes of just a straight up, like, funk jam without a lot of, like, variation. Okay. Like, I think if, like, the three of us could probably do what they were doing if we had instruments. <laughs> Like even just like I don't know. Could you but, find the pocket? Because I don't know if I can. No, I don't. Th- I think I can just do pocket. the. I can just play the chords. On the <laughs> but you know, no, it's just a straightforward, okay. straightforward funk jam. And then the Julius gets. You know, they play Julius and they get back into it. I mean, they're just going in. They're really into. You know, they're they're into this uh, into this funk. It's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting placement for Julius because it does not, at first note, fit the vibe of the overall show to this point. But then at 6.30, they fade out and it's just like quiet blues jamming. Tempo swing, we go back into Julius, but then at 11.20, they drop out entirely and it becomes this rhythmic jam. And that's what moves into, uh, is it Magia or is it I have never known how to say this. I've never known. Magilla. I've always said Magilla, but then I don't know. If I'm I right. just say it like it's an Italian. Yeah, you're like Magid. <laughs> no, I think the Magida. only reason I know is that in um, in Alive Again, Trey talked about that um, time in Atlanta when they when they when he oh god he um, made them rehearse it made like, them rehearse it yeah. for like a hundred you know, times with hundred t- and everything and he was like yeah. I've been up for a couple of days and then we we asked Jen Hartswick about it and she was like dying laughing and that's that's a really fun part of. Um, that podcast, yeah. but he did, yeah, he did yeah, talk about good. the song um, and he, he said the name. So, so we get um, 
it's, it's Magilla has been played 71 times total to, to today. Uh, this was the first since 226, 97, 22 shows at that point, which that one was the first since 5494, which was a 260 show gap. Wow. There have been five versions since this performance that we're talking about here. 72203 was the last version at Deer Creek. Um, this is like a funkier version. Mike really shines through this. Mike and is killing it, killing it. Mike is killing it at this point in the tour. And this has to be the point where it's like, everything has to go through Mike. Like this mm-hmm. entire band right now has to go through Mike. Um, but then there's these faux and like these faux endings with a ton of fanfare and like the band is cheering when it happens. It's just, you're getting this fusion of, you know, Jonathan talked about this um, when we were talking about spring 2023 and he was like, the one thing that was missing was the humor. And mm. you hear at this point, they're going through this very, call it serious transition, like an artistic transition where they're really intentionally going for something and they're succeeding at it. But then also they're still remembering who they are. And there's these moments throughout this set where it's just like the banter at the start, the faux endings here, the stuff that happens in Yamar, the stuff that happens to take me to the river. Like there's these moments where you still hear this band being like, we can't take this all too seriously. Like the, the more we laugh, the more we have fun, um, the better this will be. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I really like this set listening to this, you know, of course I'm like a 97 fluffer, but the just joy that they seem to be exuding, like how they call fish, like an orchestral greasy troll in the beginning of 2001. And then Mike's like singing like so orchestral over their intro. It's just, they sound just like they're just, it's the freedom of being in these small clubs again after being on this big arena tour with all these pressures. And I love it. I think this 2001 is like they build these peaks up and then they just drop back like bam into that dance groove. And it's so satisfying. And like, yeah, I'll take this any day, even if it's just the same groove over and over again, because I love it. But I think the Megilla, what's interesting about it is that it's like you were saying, Brian, it's so much looser. It's not like this song is really punchy. Usually it's like very like jazzy and tight and buttoned up. And so you can hear them experimenting. Like what is a song that we played like super tight, you know, back in the day, what does that sound like now under this new style? And it's, it's super fun. And at the end of it, someone yells, play Cracklin' Rosie, which I just thought was so hilarious because it's like, you know, that like 92 fan is out there like, play Cracklin' Rosie. Like, like it's just hilarious to me because it's like they're so not in that place. Play the old shit. (laughs) Exactly. It's just dying. Well, um, sorry. Go go ahead, ahead. Jay. No, no, no. Go ahead. I'm good. I was just going to talk about the Yamar is just hilarious with these like vampire child quotes and how Trey starts like calling out for each person to like – do a different thing like, okay, Cactus and Trey, Fisherman and Leo, and like, it hi-hat, clavinet. Then he just starts play, <laughs> yelling out like instruments to play. And it's just like, yeah. it's so dorky and so cute and funny. And, and then he's like foot stomping everybody. It's just adorable. Like, this is so fun. I kept thinking like if I was in this room, you'd just be having the best time. You'd be having so much fun. And then mm-hmm. Ghost is just going to like emerge out of this like foot stomping that everybody's doing, which... It's just so great. And like I said at the beginning, when I think about Ghost, I think about 1997. And they're just the best this year. Just the best. And afterwards, they're going to drop this huge bust out, which they only played one other time in 1995 inside of a David Bowie. And they're going to just play like really delicately. And like, I don't know, they're just, it just 
gets weird and funky and they build up and Trey's like screaming, take me to the river again. It's awesome. It's like interesting that they're choosing to play. It's kind of like the Megillah call. It's like playing a blues song when they've, but they're playing it through the filter of like druggy, I don't know, funk music. It's cool. Um, so two quick things. One, if Paige, if Paige ever joins us on our, on our program, we should ask him about Megillah. Please. We should. We should. You know. Um, okay. The other thing is that I just, for those of you who stuck around this long, I have a special, something special to share, which is, so this is the venue. Oh, wow. Yeah, a thousand people. Which is wow. pretty crazy and um, a little bit, I mean. It looks like something strange. out of like a Kubrick movie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I love it totally. so much. And on the ceiling, on the ceiling, there's like. Um, stained glass. Yeah, hold on. I'm, I think I have one more. Um, you have a photo of that? I don't think so because I'm not very good at this. But um, this is just another view. Wow. But the stained this glass, you cool. can see. Yeah, I mean, it looks cool. So clearly they were having fun, a thousand person venue. So I think that's in that in that sense, it's like what a what a what a cool, unique experience. And Megan, you saw some Europe. So you have you talked about that yet? I talked about it a lot last week, but no. I mean, I think. Talked about what what aspect of it? Well, just like I mean, the the this is obviously they went to Europe and just kind of fucked around, you know, in a good way. Yeah, and it was that super like loose, really loose, and they kind of experimented and just kind of they just had fun with it. And this is um, I don't know, I just feel like this is a um, I think I missed that last week because I took off because you guys started talking about my soul, so I left. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think that <laughs> that was it. That was a very dramatic and amazing exit. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's. It was a place where they could like let go of the pressures of like this, you know, five bus tour with 40 crew people. They could just go with one bus and a, you know, five, 15 person crew and they could just like party and be out. You know, I don't know if they were out front like in 97, the way they were in 96, but 96, they were like playing chess with us, you know, getting Mm -hmm. massages from people. You know, they were swinging on the swings. They were, Mike was playing guitar with singing dead songs with us. Like they were hanging out. So it was definitely a place where they felt super relaxed. I mean, they went twice in 97. You know, it was a good space for them. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Brian, I think... The, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Ask your question. Was the Funky Bitch Encore what you weren't going to listen to? It was, yeah. I was, I was getting down to the wire and I was like, do I really need to listen to a Funky Bitch Encore? Plus there's <laughs> this like five minute gap where someone didn't cut off the tape where you think that the yeah. Take Me to the River is 16 minutes, but it's really like nine. And now we get into Funky Bitch and then it started and I was like, wait, there are horns. What is going on here? Because I did not really set this before. I also want to note, just talking about the vibe of this, this is the last show for all intents and purposes of the European tour. They have yeah. a, a one set festival the next day oh, in Spain. Wow. But you guys think about, like Meg, you just said, they came to Europe twice. Like, they haven't played in America yet in 1997, and all of this has happened. And I kept thinking about it, because this is 11 days from their tour opener in Virginia Beach, which, you know, just about three years ago, the band used as one of the dinner movies. It was one of my, like, if there could be any good nights during the spring of 2020, this was one of the good, good nights where I was like... I don't care what's happening. Like fish is Same. broadcasting a 1997 show. Um, it's one of the only I, dinner in a movies that I watched. You could not miss that one. It's the best one. <laughs> it was amazing. Trey was so, so excited. So insane the whole entire yeah. time. You didn't watch the deer Creek. You didn't watch six nineteen ninety five. That's probably the other one I watched. 
I just that wish you lived first 1.0. I just yeah, wish you lived like down one. the street from me so we could document every time I ask you to come over to watch a web like, yeah. every single night. And you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to bed at like eight o'clock. Uh, and then there'd be the one show where you're like, all right, I'll come over. Yeah. Um, but I just think about like, and I don't think there's any way to know this. And I bet the band would lie to us even if we asked them, but like so much about like going to Europe as like a young person is this idea of like reinvention, like from America and this idea that like there's culture over there that we just don't have here and there's art and there's experimentation and philosophy and there's different rules on sex and drugs and just like partying that like, we just like, we don't embrace here. We're, we're so conservative here in in the States in a lot of cases we are. And then there's a sense of like, okay, the trip's winding down and I'm about to go back home. Like, all of that was like part of my European excursion, but what is going to come back with me? And I almost wonder, like, was there a sense of the band that they, they had to know when they were going back, like, we have to just like throw this music at everyone because this is where our heads are at. But also they're going to go from playing a thousand person venues to in 11 days playing 15, 20, 30,000 person venues, a, a festival of almost a hundred thousand people, a full arena tour that, that fall playing three shows straight at MSG. Like they had to know all of this at that time. Like, was there a part of them that was like, okay, can we actually bring this music back to the States? And this show almost sounds as though the band is like, fuck it. If we're like, whatever happens, like we're going all in tonight. Totally. I love that. Well, we went all in today. Didn't we? We did. We did. I like that. That was good. Can I, can I share one comment that I just have a question for you all on? Yep. Last so, last comment. Very last. End, end <laughs> of the line. Glenn Russell, a very dedicated viewer and listener, thank you so much for all you post and listen to. This is a really interesting thought. And this is something I have thoughts on. I'm sure you guys do as well. But um, So Glenn says, some of us old schoolers who got on board in the early 90s did not embrace the funk. At the time, we were seeing lots of live P-Funk, Maceo Parker, Greyboy All-Stars, etc. So Fish's funk seemed a little thin, being nice. You don't have to be nice here, Glenn. It's okay. Like, be as open and critically open as you want to be. But that said... They're white boys playing funk. They're white boys playing funk. And I have thoughts on this. I'm sure that you guys have thoughts on this. RJ, I'm going to start with you. You were relatively still a noob at this point in time, though you had always been a fish head. We all know this. Were you thinking, what the fuck is going on with this band? Like, why are they doing this? Or were you like, this is totally new and I'm on board with it? Like, what was it like for you to hear this completely different approach that was rooted in a sound of music that is not normally found in Vermont? Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe because I wasn't, this is like my, when I first really started getting out to see shows on my own. So I probably didn't even, I definitely didn't categorize it as like, this is similar to other kinds of music that I hear from other bands. I was just like, this is where fish is right now. And it's fucking awesome. You know, that was like, so, so I don't think I really had a perspective on it, especially compared to other stuff. Like I would see all those bands that Glenn mentioned later. Um, so I was just like, I just thought it was awesome. You know, I did, well, I, I think I've told you before. I did think the Deer Creek, I, I did think the summer 97 shows that I saw in the U.S., Tinley Park, Alpine, and the two Deer Creek shows were like, it was like a little too slow at times for me. 
So I think that was that was different from the 95 and 96 stuff that I saw. So if anything, I was probably a little bit like, this is slow. But then fall happened and it was like everything was just awesome. So I didn't I didn't really have a judgment on it in terms of in terms of the comparing what they were doing to anything else. I was just like, this is a great place to be because the energy was just incredible. And the jams were incredible. Meg, what about you? Because you come from seeing the band in Fall 94, um, just a little bit before RJ, but, you know, have to hang that vet status on you. Um, You love 97. At the time, was it like, okay, everything clicks for me with this band and I'm going to be in this for like the long long haul? Or was it something that you were initially not really into? Like, where did did it, how did it affect you? Similar to RJ, I was not listening to the band critically at that point. You know, to me, I had only been listening to this band for a few years and I listened to the Grateful Dead critically, like especially after Jerry died. Like when I would listen to more and more Dead, I knew more about it. I was listening to it for for a really long time and I would think about it critically, but I wasn't thinking about Fish critically. They just felt too new to me to be able to like analyze them. And I was just going to shows to party and have a great time. And this music is perfect for that. And the only shows I saw in 97 were the three tour openers in the summer. And then I did the New Year's Eve run at MSG. So I saw incredible shows. I missed the fall tour, which was a huge bummer, but I was excited about it. I thought they sounded great. I was seeing a lot of Parliament too and a lot of funk, but to me, I love that kind of music. And to me, it was like, oh, great. They're pulling these elements of these like incredible styles of music that I love. So for me, it was, I loved it. I wasn't a critical fan though then at all. Not like now when I'm so critical. Yeah, you really are. Also, sorry, Brian made a a point about the MMW. I I listened to MMW before I listened to Fish. And so I guess in that sense, I was really, I was appreciating similarities. I knew they'd played together before, but um, yeah, MMW still. I got to meet John Medeski at the backstage at the post party that we did after that night that I met you, Megan. No at, way. Uh, um, you know, I went back there because Tom was back there, and I'd like, you know, I've hung out with Metzger. Like I've met, I've met a lot of musicians, you know, but like I'd never talked to John Medeski, and I just was like, I basically told him like this whole long thing about how much <laughs> I loved his music and how he fangirled him before. Yeah, basically, and um, it's just funny because out of all the people, that was like the one where I was like, dude, I got I got to, I just have to tell you how much. He's amazing. Yeah. He's a nice, nice person. Anyway. Um, you have to do that when you have the chance. Yeah. You also, he's doing a podcast that is being distributed through Osiris called no, no simple disruption. That is about empowering young artists and making music that goes around along with poetry. And it's really cool. So anyway, that's it's a so small cool. aside, but, but I think we need to, are we rapping? Did we rap? Are we rapping? Yeah. What did, what did you I was just going to, well, I was going to just say like, cause I came in, after the fact, but, um, I remember getting my first batch of fish tapes and then my, my fish Sherpa telling me, well, you've got to hear 97 cause 97, they incorporated funk and it changed everything. And like from the jump, the idea that this band that was so sunny and bright and weird and funny and goofy and, and wild had a funk sound. I was like, what the, I have to hear this. And for whatever reason, it took months for me to ever hear a show. The first one I heard, the first fall 97 show I heard was 12, six and then 12, seven. And then later, um, 
1230 and I was like, okay, there's a whole new level here. And then 1117 is released as live fish 11. I'm like that for a long time. Those were like my four 97 shows where I was just like, okay, I get like this crazy sound that they chased after. And then they achieved it in a way that like, I can't even imagine. And I think without that, at the time I got into fish, I would not have gone as deep because knowing Mm. that they changed so rapidly and so dramatically was one of the aspects that influenced me to just keep learning about them and made me want to, you know, just dive as deep as possible. But the last thing I want to say is um, if there's a cheese to describe this show, what is is it? It's a Roque Fort. Oh, that's intense. I mean, that's the show. That's a show. Um, before we go, I just have to say one thing, and that I love every time you talk about your fish, Sherpa, Brian, I just, because you know so much, I just imagine this person is like this Yoda, like this like deep wise <laughs> being who like must know everything because like you know so much that it's like just cracks me up every time you say that. I'm like, have this image of like person in a cave who just like knows everything about fish. So sorry, I just had to say that. He taught me the most important thing, which is What's to- that? Go into a fish show at doors and don't listen to people who want to party in the lot, which is the most important thing I've ever learned about seeing fish. I did. I did not. I deviated (laughs) from him. I follow follow love instead of uh, Sherpa. um, (laughs) Never again. Never again. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So, we, there's a lot more we could say about this because it's 97 and there's 67,000 episodes of Undermine about 1997 because it's so, so incredible. It's probably how RJ feels after putting them all out. Um, But we're going to break. We will be back next week where we are going to be discussing 1998. I don't know if we have a show selected. I think Jonathan has hinted at a show that he's selecting, which if it's the show that he's selected, it's going to be awesome. Uh, There's a lot, there's a lot to dive into there, but also 1998 is just one of those years that, I think basically from here on out, we just have either really, 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 really good shows or really interesting shows because there's some stumbling happen and the stumbling is going to be really interesting. But um, I enjoyed talking here about 1997 fish with you guys. Thank you for picking this show, RJ. Um, so fun, rather than RJ. the other show that you were going to pick, man, that would have been hard. I know that would have been bad. That really bad 97 show. Thanks everybody for listening. See you guys back here next week. Bye, everyone. Osiris. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one hit thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.